The New Testament reading for today comes from the epistle to the Romans, and it's the paragraph which includes verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. Well, Romans 10, what we've just read together, is not assigned for today in the lectionary, but it is connected to our Old Testament text from Deuteronomy. In fact, Paul is explicitly quoting sections from Deuteronomy 30, and Deuteronomy 30 is where we are actually going to be camping out for the next several weeks. So Deuteronomy 30, this is right near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. So just a bit of background, a little context for where we are going to be for the next several weeks. Remember, following the exodus from Egypt, Israel spends about a year or so at Mount Sinai, entering a covenant with her God and receiving the law. The law, which was going to guide her life in the developing relationship with Yahweh. But if you remember that story, unfortunately, after they receive the law, things go downhill rather quickly. Israel ends up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and ultimately, the generation of people who received the promise and who were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, ultimately, they are prohibited from entering the promised land. So that brings us to Deuteronomy. I know we covered three books of the Bible with like two sentences, but that sort of brings us to Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy comes from the Greek and more or less means the second law, but might better be understood as a copy of the law because while we do find some new material in the book of Deuteronomy, much of it is repeated. We find Moses now standing before this next generation of Yahweh's people, detailing again the law that is going to guide them in the covenant relationship with their God. Once again, we find Moses calling Yahweh's people into a life of faithfulness. So this is all taking place in Moab just before Moses dies just before Israel finally enters into the promised land. Deuteronomy. 
So I, I know, again, covered it in one sentence, but central to the message of the book of Deuteronomy, really central to all of Jewish life, is a little section that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is commonly referred to as the Shema. You're probably very familiar with it. In fact, it is also central to our lives as followers of Jesus because Jesus picks up this text in response to some questions he received. He expands upon it, expounds upon that, and applies it to his followers, which we will explore in more detail next week. But the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. goes on, these words shall be on your heart. Teach them to your children. Talk about them. Let them guide your lives. They should never be far from your thoughts because this is central to who you are. There are two imperatives that we find in those two short verses, verses four and five. Hear, listen, and love. Both of which have sort of much more robust implications in Hebrew than our modern English uses of the word. In fact, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project notes that um, listening or hear, O Israel, involved much more than just an auditory process. It also included a response. So hear and do or listen and then act. Similarly, love, love the Lord your God, was much more than just an emotion or a feeling that they were supposed to drum up, but it involved devotion, complete, total life, allegiance. So from the beginning, obedient devotion, obedient devotion, this is the call that is being extended to God's people. Obedient devotion. It's a call that is reiterated at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, where we are going to be for three weeks. What we also find in Deuteronomy, though, accompanying this call into obedient devotion, we discover that the stakes are incredibly high. In fact, the stakes involve life and death. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's begin reading in verse 9. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. We'll pause there. We'll continue in a moment. But at this point, reading about prosperity and abundance. Sounds pretty good, right? These are the sorts of verses that I want to slap on some doilies and put in my dining room. I'm on board with this. Prosperity and abundance. But remember, in Jesus, things are a bit different now. The New Testament promise of blessing differs quite significantly from some of these Old Testament promises. We, we could think about a 
very subtle remark that the Apostle Paul makes at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. He assures his audience that they are recipients of God's continual blessings. So initially that sounds similar to what we read here. But he also insists God's blessings are first and foremost uh, understood in spiritual terms. So there's this implicit contrast. What we see quite explicitly a couple of chapters earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that the focus is on these material blessings. Just before the text we are in in Deuteronomy 30, the blessings promised to Israel as the reward for covenant faithfulness are primarily material blessings. You'll have a lot of children. Your harvest is going to be successful. You will have plenty of livestock. And ultimately, one of the promises undergirding all of this is you are going to possess a land. But again, according to Jesus, things have shifted. Because now physical blessing is understood in terms of our basic needs being met. And that's basically it. Jesus says, don't be anxious about food. Don't be anxious about clothing. If you are concerned first and foremost with Christ's rule and righteousness, he will provide for your needs. So the focus now is on blessings that exist in the unseen spiritual world. And in that regard, all believers are on equal footing. You know, when we consider material blessings, there is obviously remarkable disparity around our globe. There is even remarkable disparity in our own city, which unfortunately tends to create separate classes of people, at times even within the body of Christ. As Christians, we want to be trained to resist that pull. Because as Christians, our understanding of blessing is shaped by Jesus. And it is understood first and foremost in spiritual terms, and we all share equally in those blessings. You know, in our midweek prayer service, we conclude our time each Wednesday with a prayer of thanksgiving. And that prayer says this, Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessing of this life, but above all, for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Above all, these are the blessings we are most thankful for. These are the blessings that undergird our lives. So back to Deuteronomy. So again, the promise is blessing. If you obey and trust, if you obey the commandments, if you obey what is written in the law, you will be blessed. Now, when we read stories like this from the Torah that emphasize the law God gave Israel to guide her in covenantal faithfulness, we recognize that we haven't been instructed to follow the law in the same way. Jesus says, I I have not come to abolish or destroy the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. 
What, what Israel couldn't achieve through the law, what you and I are completely incapable of achieving through our own righteousness, again, this is what Paul is talking about in that section we read from Romans, what we are un- incapable of achieving, Christ achieves on our behalf. And yet, though we aren't instructed to follow the law in the same way, we have the same basic call into a life of obedience to and trust in our God. The call on our lives is similar. It is obey and trust. We'll come back to this in a moment. Let's read, though. Verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Probably picking up on those resonances from what we read in Romans. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Again, we'll dive deeper into that in the coming weeks, but for now, there is this insistence, you can do this. It is not this impossible list of do's and don'ts that, if adhered to strictly, will achieve salvation for you. Following the commandments is not what secures life, per se. Obedience instead flows out of a life that chooses God, However, it does seem to be cyclical in this way. Choosing God does lead to more robust living. We'll explore some of the specific ways this is expressed over the next two weeks, but today I want us to focus on the simple invitation to choose. We're going to read this in a moment. Choose life is the instruction Simple invitation to choose. Now, at this point in the story, we understand that God has already chosen Israel. That much is very clear at this point in the story. Beginning with Abram back in Genesis 12, the choice of this particular people to bring about God's salvation to the entire world, that choice of Israel has been consistent and persistent over the years. God's choice of Israel is not at all in question. What is unknown at this point, or what remains to be seen, is this. Will Israel, in turn, choose God? Will Israel forsake all others and cling to and follow Yahweh even into the unknown? I want to suggest today that we are actually faced with a similar question in our lives. Similarly, for us, life in Jesus Christ remains a choice. God does not force his will or his life on us. From the beginning of Yahweh's instructions with or his interactions with his people, the people are consistently given a choice. Whether we think back to Abraham called into the unknown, Will he follow or will he not? Or maybe we would think of Moses presenting this choice in Deuteronomy 30 again to this next generation of Yahweh's followers. Or maybe we would think of Jesus' words that we read last month 
if anyone would come after me, not forcing it, but if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus is not insisting you have to follow. You can, by all means, choose your own way, but he says, I am inviting. I hope you choose to follow, but it's up to you. There's that great line in in the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's become quite popular at this point, but he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The choice, it is a choice. It is not forced on us. It is ours, a choice we are invited to make. And yet we also recognize it is a choice that we make continually throughout our lives. I I fear that at times there has been such an emphasis placed on the moment that that choice takes place, a dramatic moment of conversion or something of that sort. And that moment in time becomes the entirety of the life of faith. I made that choice. I made that decision. Of course I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. I said a prayer at some point in the past. I made a decision years ago. I'm good. I'm in. I I put a check mark in that box and all of my effort is done. I, I can go about life how I please at this point. And I don't want to at all discount the importance of those moments. I don't think that vision of becoming a Christian or uh, that view of conversion is in and of itself entirely wrong because, as we are focusing on here, a choice indeed must be made. But I do think that reducing the life of faith to a one-time decision I made at some point in my past is woefully inadequate and even dangerous to my faith. And yet still, a choice must be made. But it must be made every day we get out of bed in the morning. As we focused on last week, our our last month, we choose to pick up our cross, and we are instructed to do that, not once, daily. Pick up our cross and follow Christ. This is something we remind ourselves of each and every day. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I choose to do that every day. And if I don't, before long, I begin to forget that fundamental reality of my life. I begin to forget my identity. I don't believe I forfeit God's love. I I believe he is still and always relentlessly pursuing us and choosing us. But without a consistent choice on my part, eventually I am no longer living into the life he has called me into. It's almost like a marriage relationship or maybe even a deep platonic relationship with a dear friend. You know, I made a choice years ago to ask Nanette to marry me. And then we made the choice, and she made the choice to say yes, of course, but then we made the choice after that to make vows of our love and commitment to one another on our wedding day. But our 
relationship, our marriage is not built on those isolated moments of proposal and then I do's. Those moments are, are really important and meaningful for us, but our marriage is actually built on countless moments each and every day where we choose one another. I heard somebody recently say of the marriage relationship that it is easy to say and actually mean, I love you so much that I would die for you. That, that is relatively easy because it's a one-time thing. It is much more difficult to make that decision every day. I am choosing today and tomorrow and the next day to love you and to pursue you. Again, there's something similar in deep, committed, platonic relationships. There's even something at a maybe a lesser degree similar at play when we make a choice to, I don't know, eat healthy or exercise or um, become a lifelong learner. All of those activities require a moment of decision initially, but that one decision is meaningless without a life of countless decisions thereafter. So the instruction for Israel is choose life. We're going to read it in just a moment. Choose life. Though you're chosen by God, this much is clear. And though you've made this decision before, your ancestors before you made this decision, you have another opportunity today. Choose life. Let's read this last section. It's five or six verses, and then we'll explore it in more detail next week. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statues and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So Moses has called the people to repentance, called them into a life of obedience, promised them forgiveness and the blessings of their God, and now he presents, sort of forces, a choice, a decision. This is what's going to happen, he says. Though you have sinned time and again, you will be forgiven, but you have to choose. Is this what you want? God doesn't force it on anyone. Instead, allows his people to freely choose, do you want life with God? If you don't want it, life with God is actually going to be a miserable affair. Do you want life with God? I hope you do. 
Choose what you want, and I will respect that choice, but I urge you, choose life. It's for your good. It's for the good of the world around you. And I believe this choice still stands before us today. Do we want life? Do we really want life with God? It is going to cost. Again, this is obedient devotion. It is going to involve submission to Christ's definition of the good life, but it will be for our good. So I encourage you today, choose life. Choose life. Maybe you've made that decision before, a hundred times, a thousand times. I encourage you again, make that decision. You're not trying to earn God's favor or gain salvation that you somehow lost, but you are reminding yourself of your identity in Jesus. I am choosing life with God, and in so doing, I am choosing a life that flourishes for me and for others. If you've never made that choice, I invite you today, choose life. Kevin, if you want to join me, we're going to gather around the table of our Lord, celebrate the life that we have in Jesus Christ, a life that comes through death as we identify with the death of Jesus, we are opened up to share in his life. I want to say a prayer for us. I'll invite you to stand and then invite you to the front. We'll make two lines down these two center aisles. You can come to the front table. When you arrive at the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive the life of Christ. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation. Grant us, O Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who can do no good thing apart from you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I invite you to join us at the table of our Lord and receive the life of Christ.